Hello, good morning and good evening, rather. My Bible study crew, good to see you. Good to have you guys online. We are going to get ready to pray. We're grateful for all of you who are commenting, liking, sharing, and subscribing. We appreciate you. So let's bow our heads. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you, love you, honor you, appreciate you for all that you are, all that you mean, God. You are so awesome, kind, and wonderful toward us. God, I'm praying that you would illuminate our ears as hearers, illuminate my mouth as a speaker and teacher, God. Uh, bless us as we go before you in study and pray that you would give us strength and wisdom and clarity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to... Uh, look back at Sunday. Sunday morning, we talked about uh, the sermon titled uh, Fall Back. And the reason why we were in that particular sermon title and topic was because of the fact that it actually was the uh, start of daylight savings, the you know, November uh, where we actually fall back. So as I was looking at that, and you've, if you even look at the screen, you see the leaves reminding us of fall. And as I was thinking about that, God just began to give me some wisdom on how to share a sermon with that theme in mind. And oftentimes when uh, people's mind are already centered on something that is going on in uh, the world or in their life, whether it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, some type of season or thing, it's easy for me to begin to uh, share something that would impact their soul because their minds are already focused on something. So God has often been able to give me uh, things. But on, on this particular occasion, it's like, wow, a daylight savings type of sermon. I didn't know quite where God was going, but he gave me something that I think will bless us. So let's try to dig into this just a little uh, more. So what we discussed was three types of fallbacks, and I'll, I'll take my time to make these known. One is a fallback that you don't want. So we discussed a fallback that you don't want from Scripture. All these come from Scripture. Two, a fallback that you do want. Then three, a fallback that you won't want, but one that you will need. So one that you don't want, one that you do want, and then one, and this is kind of this third point, was something that really uh, I felt like was the centerpiece of what God was sharing but a fallback you won't want, but one that you will need. Because everything that we need is not what we want or desire. So so looking at that, let's see if we can get into the scripture to understand it uh, a little more. So we started in this uh, passage of scripture, 1 Samuel 4, 21a through 22b, King James Version of the Bible. Since we are in Bible study, let me uh, make this point. Whenever I do this with scripture and you see in the middle of the scripture dot, 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 three dot periods, what I'm doing is I'm not giving the full verse. And so that is showing that I don't change the verses at all, but that is showing that it's not the full verse. So when, when it says 421a, that means I stopped at the first part of the verse and then I picked up 422b and I ran them together for uh, to be concise and for clarity. But if you were to go and look at your scripture, it would look a little different than that. So that is why I always make those points there. And the reason why I bring that up is because I don't ever want you to think that I'm changing or adjusting scripture to fit what I need. 
I want you to know exactly what I'm doing. So if you see that I've added those three dots and I'm trying to explain exactly what I'm doing. So 1 Samuel 421A through 22B. So the first part of 21 and the last half of 22. And it's and it reads thusly. And she named the child Ichabod saying, that is the first part, part of 21. And then the last part of 22 says, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So this, uh, to discuss that, I, I don't have time to give all the details of that story that maybe you should take some time to read on your own. But when you come into 1 Samuel, um, you, it's a, it's, we've talked about it before, it's, it's an adjustment because Samuel kicks off the end of the era of the judges. So actually, when you look in the books of the Bible, you'll see Joshua, Judges. So the Judges was, were how God led the people. They weren't led by kings at that time. They were led by Judges. Samuel was the last judge, but he also kicked off the prophets, the prophetic. So 1 Samuel uh, represents over an overlapping... Uh, let, me, let me see if I can do it this way. I think this will help us. I'm going to see if I can draw this circle here, circle there. So here's the J for Judges, P for Prophets, and right here in the middle is Samuel. Samuel overlapped between those two. He was the end of the Judges, but he was also started off what we call the prophetic. So I bring that up for a reason. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make in that bringing that up is that there are certain people that are transitional people. They function in more than one realm simultaneously. And when they do that, oftentimes God gives them things that is not always what people want to hear. He gives them things because they're usually closing down one era and starting another era, but they're functioning in both eras simultaneously. There are certain uh, people in history that were like that, that they were ushering in something new as well as challenging something old, and they were overlapping in between. And oftentimes those people die. Uh, the example that comes to my mind uh, one person died, one didn't. One example that comes to mind is Malcolm X, who comes in. He was figuring his way through some of the things that he was talking about. He was he was kind of figuring his way out, but in the process, he was condemning the American racism. But he is also was trying to rise and raise black pride, and he was intersecting between those two. And before he got it figured out, he got killed. A person who got a chance to live. Uh, was still treated poorly, but got a chance to live and see the cycles was Mandela. Mandela came and, and he tore down apartheid and ushered in a new era and ended up becoming the president of South Africa. But he went through 27 years of imprisonment. So he was a transitional person. So when you come to Samuel, Samuel was very transitional. And the transition that Samuel was bringing was a transition based on the glory of God. So the the sermon was about fall back, but it's centered on God's glory because that's important. And we have to be what uh, I call glory carriers. And when you are a glory carrier, 
the thing about glory is there is a fading glory and then there's a rising glory. There's a glory that's from the old and then there's a glory that's from the new. And certain people who are glory carriers, they are in between trying to usher one season out and a new season in. So with that context, let's go back to the scripture. And in this scripture, it talks about the end of things. And it says, and she should name the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed. So the Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod. It means the heavy, weighty presence of God. So Ichabod was the glory has departed. So when Samuel showed up on the scene, Eli was his mentor. However, God was frustrated with Eli. Eli was the end of the judges, but he was frustrated with Eli because even though Eli had started off well, he had allowed things to get out of control because his sons were in charge and Eli was not correcting them. His sons, he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were doing all kinds of things. They were stealing money. They were sleeping with women. And so they were using their position for everything except for the glory of God. So God raises up a very young man, brings him under the leadership of Eli, but then uses him to speak to Eli and say, listen, I am moving away from your leadership and I'm bringing in something new. Your glory is fading. So with that understanding, we pick up this next verse. We go back to the top of the chapter, not all the way to the top of the chapter, but uh, enough for us to get the context. So 1 Samuel 4, 13 says, and when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. So quickly, Eli was looking for what was happening on the battlefield. He was trying to, to watch. He was waiting he couldn't actually see the battlefield, but he was sitting in a high place because he was looking to see would someone run and be bringing the message. And here's the thing that Eli knew because it was prophesied to him by Samuel that things are slipping from your grasp. God is not pleased and I'm shifting away from you, your family, your leadership. So it got to the place that it was almost too late for Eli to even repent of it. So he knew it was coming. He just didn't know when. He just didn't know how. And his focus was the ark of the Lord. And in other words, based on the leadership and based on what we've been doing, God's presence is getting ready to, to depart us. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I know it's coming. I know God didn't just speak to young Samuel for nothing. And when God first warned Eli, he didn't move. He didn't do anything. He got very lazy. And so he knew something was coming and he knew it wasn't good. All right, let's, let's go back to the scripture. Verse 14. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, what meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. He explained what was going on. Verse 16. And the man said unto Eli, I am he, and we underline that because we're going to come back to that later. I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, what is there done, my son? Eli was saying, okay, what's happening? What's going on on the battlefield? Verse 17, and the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines. So let, let me stop and, and talk about that just for a second. 
So the first thing was the enemy had got the advantage of the people of God. So that's one key way you know the glory has shifted from you is when your enemies begin to get the advantage. It's one thing for the enemy to have an advantage momentarily, but when you have to run from your enemies, something's wrong because that means God is no longer fighting for you. Now to spiritualize it for us in our day, Satan is defeated. And so God allows him sometimes to challenge us, but God neither leaves us nor forsakes us. So he always stands up and does battle for us. If you get into place where God is no longer doing battle for you, you've missed something. That something's wrong. The glory has departed because God is no longer standing for you, fighting for you. You've, you've allowed something to happen. And that's what happened with Eli. And so let's go back. Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there have been also a great slaughter among the people. Not only have they run, but they're being killed. They're being slaughtered. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. So the two sons that he was afraid to chastise, check, put in place, they got their just due. They died. You, you would have to do a little study about them to see how awful they were acting in their leadership position. So they, they died. They're gone. And we don't see a quick response from Eli when he hears that his sons were dead. Because Eli knew they had gotten out of control. He just, out of cowardice, didn't step in and make a change. But it was the next phrase that made all the difference to Eli. Let's read that. I'll, I'll, I'll start back a little bit. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. So the Philistines, the enemy, have come and they have actually taken the presence of God away. Let's go to the next verse. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, when the messenger made mention of the ark of God, not when the messengers made mention of his son's dying, but when the messenger made mention of the ark of God, that he, meaning Eli, fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck broke, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. So he hears the news of his two sons, doesn't really prick him, but he hears that the ark of God is taken. That really pricked him because he knew it was prophesied that this day is coming. And he literally fell backwards, stunned, but in his falling backwards, he actually broke his neck and died. I want to bring up another point that it says, and it says, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. The Bible adds a few things, descriptive things to let us know about us. He was heavy, and I don't mean, believe that it was talking just about his physicality. He was physically heavy, but what it was pointing out to the fact that he had gotten lazy spiritually. He got into the place where he didn't care. He didn't try. And here's the thing, because he had judged 40 years. And sometimes this happens with people in leadership where they think, okay, I've done my part. I was okay in my part. I've handed it to the next people. And if they mess it up, so be it. 
I've done my part. That's the kind of mindset he got. He had gotten lazy. God told him to check his sons. He wouldn't do it. And so the Bible brought up the fact that he was old and he was heavy. So that brings us to our first point. So A, which is fallback number one. So this brings us to fallback number one, which was a literal fallback where he literally fell back on his chair like this, fell back, broke his neck and died. It was a literal fallback. But here's the connotation and the point. When God's glory has departed from you, no matter how long you've moved forward, a fallback is inevitable. The truth of this point is if you get to the place where you're so stagnant, so lazy, so heavy, that when you're warned that the glory will be departing from you and you don't do anything to change, you don't do anything to adjust, you don't do anything to rise up as a leader, you have a casera, oh, uh, whatever it is, whatever will be, will be attitude. You run a horrible risk. And the reason for me bringing this up, and I told you that this is a fallback that you don't want, but the reason for bringing this up specifically is the idea and the fact that there are a lot of Christians that rest on their loyal laurels in their minds that Christianity is twiddling their thumbs till heaven. I'm saved. It's okay. But the gospel is about us going to the highways and byways, compelling men to come. The gospel is the good news. Good news is something that you tell, that you tell people the good news. There are many Christians who are just stuck, stagnant. They have no glory. They have no anointing. They have no passion for God, and it doesn't bother them at all. They've gone through the motions for years, and it doesn't bother them at all. But in their mind, I'm okay. I'm saved. I'm going to get heaven. It just, it, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that when the glory has departed, you will fall backwards. And what we call that, we call that backsliding. So there are a lot of Christians who are in backslidden states and don't know it. And they're only backsliding, not basically because of their sin. They're backsliding because of their laziness their stagnation, their unwillingness to repent, adjust, move forward. You can be moving forward for several years and you can have a space of time where you just stop, you get lazy, you don't care, you're going to slip back. You don't just, in God, you don't just stay at a certain level. You're either moving forward, moving up, or you're sliding back. There's only two options. And so this is a fallback that we don't want, but it's inevitable if the glory of God, the presence of God is not vitally important to us. If you can be a Christian and not pray and it doesn't bother you, you can be a Christian and not study the word and it doesn't bother you. You can be a Christian and not be around other believers and it doesn't bother you, then you are slipping, sliding back and that's not good. It's a fallback we don't want. There ought to be a passion and a fervor for us that are always trying to move forward. One of the things that we should understand that as human beings, we have a tendency to foul things up. When you put things in humans' hands, we have a tendency to mess it up. So when you know that about yourself, you should have a drive to stay close to God. Because if I'm left up to my own devices, I'll mess something up. I'll mess up relationships. I'll mess up friendships. I'll mess 
up good jobs. I'll, I'll drink too much, say too much, do too much. I'll, I'll, I'll mess up a relationship. I won't apologize when I need to. And the only way that can help me with that is when I'm locked into God and I have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads me and guides me. It corrects me. It, it uh, convicts me. It tells me, no, you need to apologize. Let's be honest. There, there are times that we never would have apologized if it wasn't for the Spirit of God just nudging us, laying into us. And we are finally, okay, God, all right, I need to do better. We should be so grateful for the Spirit of God that is with us. But when you are no longer convicted and you no longer feel remorse and you no longer feel uh, bad about things, you are on a slippery slope that is not good. So this is a fallback that we do not want. Now, let's discuss a fallback that we do want. And the reason why I say that is because why would you even be here at Bible study if you plan to be in a slipping back state and don't care? No, that's probably not you. So let's talk about a fallback that we do want. Let's go to this scripture. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered into. If we know the scripture, we know this is the garden of Gethsemane. So this is him close to the end of his life. This is John chapter 18. Whenever I think about John chapter 18, it reminds me of John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is a beautiful chapter because it is the actual Lord's Prayer. When we quote the Lord's Prayer, that is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when, he, when they said, teach us how to pray. That is the prayer he taught them. And so people recite that prayer and they call it the Lord's Prayer. But the longest recording of a prayer that Jesus prayed was actually in John chapter 17 when he was praying, when his fellow friends, disciples, when they kept falling asleep and they wouldn't pray with him. We see in John 17 when Jesus just decided to pray in spite of what they were doing, despite what they were doing. And John 17 records the prayers that he was praying. So when you get to John 18, he has a tenacity about himself. He has a uh, determination. That's, that's probably the word that I think would fit best. And you would have to study John 17 to understand why he had such a determination. But by the time you get to John 18, Jesus was determined and reserved that death was inevitable for him. And this is what he needed to do. So he was locked in to that assignment. With that understanding, let's look at these verses. Let's look at verse two. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus had a prayer moment, but it wasn't the first time he, he had taken his disciples to this place to pray. This was part of his routine. This is a side note that I think is, is good for us to pick up and think about that when you have a routine that includes prayer, when you get in a crisis, you will resort and revert back to that routine. If you do not have a routine, when you get in crisis, the last thing you will do is pray. You will, you will eventually pray because it gets so bad, but you'll think of everything else but prayer. 
because you don't have a routine of prayer. And that is a signal and a sign of a person who has fallen back, who has slid back because prayer is not the first solution they go to. It's the last solution. They've tried everything else. Oh, let me have the church pray for me or let me go and ask somebody to pray or let me pray myself. When you are locked into God, prayer is your first resort. Calling out to God is your first resort. So even in Jesus' hardest time, he goes back to the place that he had often been a place of prayer. Now, for him, this was a physical, literal place. But for you, it may not always be a physical, literal place. It could be just a place you go into in here or inside here that when things are in turmoil around you, you know how to reach inside and tap in to that connection you have with God. And if that connection has been fostered in good times, it'll become automatic to you in bad times. Another way that I said it on Sunday is that public power always starts or is germinated. It's grown and birthed in private places. People who are anointed and powerful and uh, seem to be gifted in the things of the spirit, those things didn't happen overnight. There is a long pattern of them having routines of doing things. When people are quoting scripture from the top of their head, that scripture didn't just get there. They took time to memorize scripture, uh, something that we don't talk about that much anymore. There's a lot of new saints that don't have the discipline of memorizing scripture so that when I need scripture in the crisis, I can just pull from within because I've committed scriptures to memory. Those practices, those routines are important. And people who have fallen back, they see no importance in things like that until crisis comes. And then sometimes it is too late. I like what our elder said. Prayer is first for me. That should be our mindset that that is it's such a priority in good times that even in bad times, prayer is a first for us. All right, let's go back to the scripture. Uh, so now it says, now Judas who betrayed him. So now we're getting to the place, not only has Jesus determined that he was going to have to die, but the way he had to die was so sinister and awful, betrayed by someone who should have loved him, someone he'd taken time with. So let's see how things progress. Let's look at verse three. So Judas, having taken a detachment of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Lanterns and torpens, uh, torches and we weapons. I'm going to go back to our board for a second. And I, I, I want to make this point. Sometimes it's not what your enemy does. It's how they do it that is so irritating and, and so uh, debilitating and frustrating. And the point that I, I'm making is that it, it wasn't just the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus. It was the fact that Jesus being a nonviolent man, a man who could have resorted to violence several times, being a nonviolent man, Judas comes and brings with him a whole group of soldiers. They have weapons and torches. 
and they are approaching Jesus as if he's the worst criminal in the entire world. And in order for Jesus to handle this properly, he had to be prayed up. And going back to this point, for us, it often is the how. It's how we are treated. It's not that you betrayed me. It's how you betrayed me. It's not that you did me wrong. It's how you did me wrong. You 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 lied on me in such a crazy way. I'll, I'll give you an, an extor- a, a story of one of my hows. So I remember one time... Um, reaching out to a, a young lady who I believe she was 20 years old and her husband was 23 years old. She, uh, I, I seen her on Twitter posting about being married young and she was 20, her husband was 23. That immediately uh, resonated with me because I was 23 and Devin was 20 when we got married. So I responded to her tweet and was like, hey, it gets better. Stay in there. When you're married young, it's rough, but it gets better. And so she privately messaged me and was like, how do you know it will get better? And I began to tell her some of the stories about me and my wife and how we uh, processed uh, through and how, how even though we were young, we, we made it. Told them about miscarriages. And, and you know, had had a, had a little bit of a mentoring relationship where she could ask questions, and I would help her. Didn't think anything of it. Just, just doing what what I'm, I know to do, helping people the way I've been taught to help people. So one day I get a call on my job from my wife, and to make long story short, the husband of this lady had called my wife and basically told her that I was in an affair with his wife. And I'm like, I don't even know the girl. I was just helping her through Twitter. I was like, I don't, I don't have her number. I don't know anything about her. I don't know how this guy got my number. I, like, I don't know. And so it was very frustrating to really try to help someone. And then it'd be turned totally into something crazy and ridiculous. I end up having a conversation with the husband. Later on uh, in that day, he calls my house again. And he calls me and he's like, it's a big misunderstanding. My wife got mad at me and she started making up lies. And I'm thinking, but if you were going to lie about anybody, why lie about the person who tried to help you? So the, uh, one of the reasons why I bring that up, particularly that week, I had really, really, really been prayed up. I, was just, I just was having real good moments with God, not knowing that, I was going to be betrayed or talked about. I was going to be lied on in such a horrendous way. My wife was going to be dragged in something so unnecessarily. And all I was literally trying to do was help a struggling marriage. It makes you want to say, forget these people. I ain't helping nobody. I'll never do that again. But that's not my heart. And the reason why is because I was prayed up. But when you think about Jesus, that like my story is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket to the betrayal that Jesus had went through. So let's go back to that. Jesus, therefore, knowing everything that would happen to him, went forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, it specifically tells us he knew everything. He knew everything that was going to happen, and he makes a statement, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? He knew who they were looking for, but he had such a demeanor of peace and it's not in this, uh, this version, and we're, we're reading from John. 
But in another uh, version, it talks about him making the statement, what did I do that would make you bring swords and, and weapons? How, how, how did I ever move in life that would make you think that you needed all this to, to come to me? He was so, so peaceful. And so knowing everything that would happen, he asked him the question, whom do you seek? Let's look at verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he and Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. Interesting, Judas didn't have even the courage to go point him out and say, this is the guy, because he knew he was wrong. He told them, he said, the person that I kiss is the one. So in another version, it shows that when Jesus, Judas greeted Jesus, he gave him a, uh, a greeting like a kiss, and they knew that's the one to take. Just just a horrible betrayal. But there was something that I seen in there that I thought was powerful. At verse 6, and we'll, we'll come back to this in just a moment, but John 18, 6 says, when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So this brings us to this. This brings us to fallback number two. So we had fallback number one, and this is fallback number two. Fallback number one is a fallback that we did not want. We don't want to be falling back, sliding away from God. Fallback two is a fallback that we do want. And to explain it, let me go back to that scripture and, and use the underlining that I use, and then we'll talk about it like we talked about it on Sunday. So here with the underlying, I have I am he underlined in red. So when he made that statement, I am am he. Earlier, we see when the messenger was coming to Eli, he made the same statement, I am he, but nothing happened. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So there was a falling back too. Now, I didn't bring this up on Sunday, but I, I will talk about it here. Some people will say that when people go to the altar and they have hands laid on them and they fall out, they was like, that ain't nothing. That's fake. There's no scriptural proof for that. Well, here is the scriptural proof for that. When the power of God is present, and this is the reason why we don't want to slip away from the power of God. When the power of God is present, it has the literal power to be able to sweep you off your feet, to actually make you literally fall back. And in this case, when he said, I am he, they literally fell back and they fell to the ground. Another way to say is fainted. It's like they fainted. They lost. When you faint, you lose the activity of your legs and you'll just drop. You'll go, you, you will go down. So the power of this is that for us, one of the reasons why we do want this is, or let me put this point up and then I'll, I'll come back and explain it. When God's glory rises up in you, every enemy that is facing you and even those that are betraying you must fall back. They must fall back. And here's the point. So you would take, you have to go years back in the scripture and you have to go to Moses when God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The children of Israel were slaves. He was speaking for the slaves. He was going to the government, not just the government. He was going to the king who he grew up 
almost like a, uh, a half-brother to this Pharaoh, and he has to go to him and tell him, God said, let the people go. Moses understood how that Egyptian government worked. He understood how the Pharaohs worked, and he knew that they don't, they're not just going to give up the slaves. So who do I say sent them? Because they're not going to believe me stuttering Moses. Who do I say sent me? And God gave him this powerful answer. He said, tell them the I am that I am sent you. And that powerful statement is, the point is, I am. He is the I am that I am. He is everything that you need. So if you need joy, he says, I am that I am. In this case, they needed deliverance. They needed to be delivered from the grips of Pharaoh. Since we are delivered simple, oftentimes we get in situations where we need deliverance. But when God is rising up in us, even when he is being betrayed and attacked by the enemies that are around us, whenever he says, I am he, the power of his I am statement will drive the enemy back away from you. It'll make your enemies fall to their feet. The scripture says that, our enemies will become our footstool. We'll be able to walk on top of our enemies because whenever he speaks that he's the I am or whenever we allow the I am to rise or, or the word that I use in the point, the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, when it rises up in us, when, we're not, when we've not fallen back from God, but we've pressed into God and we've given everything to be close to God and we've stayed close to God. We've tried to learn and study and, and we really love God with all of our heart glory of God rises up in us and the I am, it actually stands in front of us. It stands beside us. It stands behind us. We are surrounded. Uh, the scriptures talk about angels encamped around about us. The scripture also says that favor is around us like a shield, like a force field. Um, when Satan first tried to get at Job. He had to come back and tell God, he said, there is a hedge about him. I want to get at Job. And you told me I had the permission to go, but I can't get at him because there is a hedge. God, you have to remove the hedge first before me even to get close to him. And this is a powerful understanding for us. Whenever the enemy is face to face with us, the only way he could get face to face with us, God had to remove the hedge for him to even get that close. And in the case of Job, the only reason why the hedge was removed, because Job was going to get double from what he was. So whenever you see the enemy face to face, it only means elevation for you. It only means you're going to another level. It only means you're going higher. Because what you don't know, there were so many times that the enemy tried to come, but he couldn't come because there was a hedge around you. There was a blocking. There was a gate. You, you, you may say, I don't live in a gated community. And I would say, yes, you do. You, you are covered by the blood of the lamb. The I am that I am is standing up and he's in front of you. He's before you. One, one scripture talks about him being our front and our rear guard. He, he really walks with us. He, he really stands and he's really governing us in every way imaginable. We don't know all the times that we have been protected from what the older saints would say, dangers seen 
and unseen. There's many times you have been protected and didn't know it. There are many times things were happening in your house that would have killed you, but the angels of God took care of it. There, there were gas leaks inside your walls that you didn't know about, but an angel repaired it. You never had to go to repairman. God has been there because he is your I am. That's why you don't ever want to fall back from him. You want to be close to him so that you can always have the fallbacks that you do want, the fallbacks that makes your enemies fall back. I don't want to fall back from God. I want my enemies to be falling back from me. Now, because we are human and we live in uh, a human life, that every battle that we get in doesn't just happen right away and everything gets fixed right away. That is unrealistic. We live in a fallen world and we're going to have to experience what it's like to live in a fallen world. And one of the reasons why God wants us to, to have that experience is so that we would have an aversion to sin. We wouldn't be comfortable in sin because everything we see that is negative is a result of sin. Adam and Eve didn't start off with anything wrong or bad. They were in the Garden of Eden that was so powerful and so beautiful, but they made a mistake and the world was plunged into a chaotic state after that. And so everything we see that is wrong is because of that. So even when we deal with things that are wrong, we have to remember it's because it's a fallen world. So what we don't want to, we, what we don't want to do, we don't want to fall back because of the fallen world. We want to press into God so that we have a right to go to heaven and, and be in the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no traces of a fallen earth, no traces of sin and temptation and evil and wickedness, no traces of hatred and racism, no traces of that, only love. Yeah, we, we want that. So we want to press for that. So that is powerful. So let me bring that up one more time and then we'll move forward. When God's glory rises up in you, every enemy that is facing you, and even those that are betraying you must fall back. Let me say it like the scripture says, says, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. You really don't have to be mad at people and fighting people because if they seriously are coming against you, they're in, end up going to be coming against God. You just keep doing what you're supposed to do. Now, now going back to that story I told you about, about that wife and the husband, it was, it was a prayer that I prayed. I, I had worked the midnight shift and I got home and I was just tired. And I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I, I don't have a way to prove to my wife that I didn't do this. I just need her to take my word for it. But I told God, I said, God, I don't want to deal with this. I was like, I'm going to sleep. And when I wake up, I want this all to be gone. I know they don't always happen like that, but I was just like, I just don't want to deal with this. I prayed that prayer, went to sleep, and I woke up to a phone call from the man apologizing to me, saying it was a big mistake. And it really, in, in 24 hours, God had just worked the whole thing out. And the crazy thing that I found in the moment is, as the guy was talking to me and saying it was a big mistake and his wife lied, and, and then, he, then he was like, just pray for me and my wife. And I was like, forget y'all, forget you and your wife. Y'all causing trouble in my marriage, and all I'm trying to do is help. But I never said that. In the, in the moment, God arrested me, and God says, no minister to him. That's, that, that's why I allowed him to call you. And on the phone, I prayed with him 
Now, after I prayed with him, I blocked him and his wife. And I've never heard from them again because I, I, I was just like, I don't want to be bothered with people that betray you. But even in the moment, I was allowed to minister. Why? Because the I am was on the inside of me. And the glory of God was rising up in me. And instead of fighting my battles, God fought the battle for me. But God is so loving that even when people are betraying you, he still gives them another chance to, so they can get right. And I, I don't know, maybe those people, their marriage worked out and maybe they've gone on to be great people. I don't know. But I was instrumental in at least giving that chance. One thing we know about Judas, uh, the Bible says that Judas hung himself. Peter denied God, denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus, but Peter was restored. Judas never gave Jesus that chance. What I wonder if Judas hung around long enough, I wonder would resurrect Jesus restored him. I believe he would have because he's just that loving of a God. So remember that you don't have to fight your own battles because God will stand up for you and everything that's coming against you must fall back. All right, let's Let's go further. So I, I told them Sunday, like, this is where I wanted to end the sermon. This was a good note, a high note. You want to end the sermon on a climax. But I couldn't because it was one more fallback that the Lord pointed out to me in the same passage of Scripture that I thought was very beautiful. And it really became the centerpiece of the message for me. Now, I don't know how other people received it, but for me, it became the centerpiece. So let's go to this Scripture, John eighteen ten. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And originally reading this, I love it. And I was like, yes, Peter, you my type of dude. He's coming after Jesus. He jumps up. And if you know anything about the hierarchy, Peter didn't start with the soldiers, the lower people. He went straight to the high priest because it was a high priest who had the right to sanction everybody who was doing what they was doing. It was a high priest that had uh, had brokered the payment for Judas. Peter went straight to the top person and uh, and cut him off. So it wasn't the high priest, but it was the high priest servant, Malchus. But he, he was a representation of the top person. So I love that. But let's look at the verse, which we all know what happened. Verse 11, then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me, given me? Let me read it again and read it more dramatically as if we were right there in the moment. Then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Is it right for me to escape what God has asked me to do? I, I, I don't need your help, Peter. I don't need you fighting my battles. This is what I'm supposed to do. And the scripture says he picked up his ear put it back on his head and healed him. What Jesus was saying is simply this, and we'll put it up. This is fallback number three. What Jesus was saying is, I'm going to fall back to the will of God. Yeah, it would be, it would be great for me to allow my disciples to fight for me, but to be truthful, I am both God and man. I'm 100% man and 100% God. I don't need Peter to fight for me. The scripture says that he could call and in, in a moment's time with his words, legions of angels could have come. He could have called all those people to be disintegrated. He could have snapped his finger and their breath been taken away. And more than them just falling back, their lives could have been gone. 
but he fell back because the greater will was I've got to die for humanity. So whether I get betrayed to get on the cross or whether they, they take me, it doesn't make a difference. This is the cup that I must take. So I fall back. I don't do it my way. I fall back. So the last fallback is when it's the one you won't want, but it's the fallback of your flesh. When you have to tell your flesh to get out of the way and yield to the will of God, because sometimes the will of God is not something you want to accept. Sometimes the will of God and many times is something you don't understand. The scripture says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Sometimes his will is for you to forgive someone you don't want to forgive. In that moment, he, who says that Jesus necessarily wanted to forgive a Judas or wanted to heal the servant's ear? But he had a spirit that said, I fall back and I allow your will to be front and center. If I allow you to be front and center to fight my enemies, then I allow, uh, I don't want my flesh to be front and center. I want you to be front and center. Even if you're leading me in a direction that I don't particularly like. Even if you didn't answer prayer that I wanted to answer this way and you didn't answer it that way. Even if I have to accept something that I normally wouldn't want to accept. And then on Sunday morning, I brought up the point of my father dying and the way that he died. I kept praying and I was like, oh, okay, I know my father has to die at some point in life. He's getting older. I understand that, God, but not like this, God. Not not by COVID, not with a disease for all the work he's done for you, God. I know you don't want him to die like this. That was my prayer, my hope, and my belief. I just couldn't fathom that he would never come home from the hospital. That just wasn't a thought. I just couldn't fathom it. But then it happened. What do I have to do with that? There's a certain point of me that has to accept, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your will is bigger than my will. I fall back and I say, God, I may not understand it and I honestly may not like it, but I still say, you, Father, know best. Remember the, the, the show, Father Knows Best? God, you know best. And at the end of the day, this is what, what I, I kept wrapping my mind around. I want my father, but you have every right to give him his reward. You have every right to call your servant to you, no matter how he's called home. You have every right. So, God, I yield my will to your will. God, I fall back. Let's bring up this point. And this is why this was so important and powerful to me. When God's glory is calling you, you may want to do things one way. But if God's will is a different way, your flesh must fall back. It is a must. Your flesh has to take the back seat. Jesus is not our co-pilot. He is our pilot. I get in the back seat. You drive the ship. I, I may not like where you're going, how you're going. I may not like the speed you're going. I may want you to slow down. I may want you to speed up. But at the end of the day, you're the driver. I'm the rider. So I fall back. Now, for me, as a driver, one of the things that I am frustrated with are passenger drivers. I got the wheel. 
I don't like it when a passenger tries to tell me what to do when I'm the one with the wheel. It's annoying. But I wonder how great, great, big, powerful God feels when we always try to tell him how to do what we think needs to be done. Not only do we tell him how to do it, we'll pray and ask him to do it, and then we'll get our hands in there and start messing with stuff. And that's why God sometimes has to say, look, I need you to fall back so I can do what I need to do in your, through your life. One of the biggest, largest churches in America is Lakewood Church, who is pastored by Joel Osteen. But his father, John Osteen, had actually built a great church. It was running somewhere between five and 8,000 uh, people. Wonderful. And Joel was reserved to be his dad's television producer. But his dad dies. And it was through a series of events, Joel realizes I'm supposed to take over my father's church. The church has erupted in this day and age. Would it have erupted the same way with his dad, John, pastoring it all the way into a long time? Maybe not. Maybe God moved one off the scene to elevate the other. So Joel had to accept the will of God. Very similarly, I had to accept this as God's will and fall back. Now, it's never God's will for disease to win. But at the end of the day, God can choose to take his servants any time he desires because he knows what he's doing. So I fall back. But it's not just in the thought of this, that I, of, of the death of my father, but in many things, when, when, it, when it comes to uh, relationships, when it comes to monogamy, I brought this up on Sunday, monogamy, when, it, when you, you give vows before people, but then when you get out in the real world, sometimes husbands and wives are, have chemistry with other people, and then they have to be disciplined enough to say no and tell their flesh to fall back. No, I'm not going to ruin the vows that I made. I'm going to stay. All, all the things that we have to sometimes take down and tell our flesh no, it, it's called in the scripture the crucifixion of the flesh, that we have to crucify our flesh. We must make our flesh fall back. Let's look at these scriptures. Isaiah 48 and 10, behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I've chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. I mentioned this, that uh, God sometimes blesses us through trials. Some people, he blesses them quick and easy. There's other people, they only get blessed through the muck and the mire, the mud. They started from the bottom. Now they're here. They don't have nothing easy. And when you're one of those people who don't get anything easy, it's easy to be frustrated and feel like God's being unfair with you because everybody else seems to be getting blessed quicker and easier than you. Other people can get away with stuff that you can't get away with. They can do stuff and still be blessed. You do it. Your life turns into shambles, man. You, 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 get, a, you get addicted to cigarettes. The next thing you know, you, you can't hardly make it. They seem, they've been smoking all their life and they're okay. It don't seem fair, but Listen, God knows, he understands, and we don't know what heaven's going to be like. You may get to heaven and the person that got blessed real, real quick on earth don't have all the rewards in heaven that you have. So you have to be willing to fall back. So he told in, through Isaiah, he said, I didn't, I, I didn't refine you with silver. I didn't refine you with the easy stuff. I refined you through the furnace of affliction, through trouble, 
hard times for my own sake. And I did it for my own reasons. Even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory to another. Remember, the key that we were talking about was the glory of God. And God says, I won't share my glory with another. So I need you to fall back and get out of my way. Because when you get in my way, you get into my glory. And when you get into my glory, you start messing things up for me, for you, and for a lot of things. There are a lot of things that haven't happened, not because God didn't want them to happen. And I mean, even in your life, it's because the people that he had chosen to do it, they keep getting in God's way and messing things up. There are people who were supposed to give you money that they wouldn't give. They were just disobedient. They wouldn't allow their flesh to fall back. And now God has to figure out another way to get things done because people just keep messing things up. We can go all the way back to Adam and Eve to see that. So verse 12, hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. Here we see that same phrase. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. I'm alpha and I'm omega. I know the beginning and the ending. I know everything in between. I know I've gone over it just a little bit. It's just, it's so powerful what, what I believe we're, we're sharing. But let's say you, you go to a movie. You go, you see the opening part of the movie. You get a call you have to get on and you come back and you see the ending part of the movie. You will be more than likely confused because you don't know everything in between. You don't know the whole thing. You only see a glimpse of the beginning and a glimpse of the end. But God knows the whole thing. He knows it before it went to the screen. He knows the writing, the acting. He knows the producing. He knows everything about the story. And so he's saying, since I'm first and last and everything in between, please fall back and let me do this because I know what I'm doing. You've only got glimpses. The scripture says even when we prophesy, we only prophesy in part. We only have a little piece of it because we are finite. He's infinite. So our flesh needs to fall back. And this is how our flesh will fall back. And we'll see the way Jesus did. And the reason why he was able to do what he did in John 18 and even yield himself and allow them to arrest him. Here's the final verse. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. God, I don't want it to be like this. I don't want it to happen like this. Some people said he didn't want to go to the cross and die. Others say that maybe he didn't want to have to receive all the sin of the world, be separated from his father. You have to think about it, the molester, all that sin was on Jesus. In the moment, Jesus became the rapist, the molester, the most ill, vile, worst person. He became all of that because all sin was poured on him. All sin that would happen past, present, and future was all poured on him. So maybe he was saying, God, I don't want all, all that to be a perfect, sinless God divine have to have all that. He said, is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And here's the final uh, connotation. Nevertheless, you will never be the less if you fall back and allow God to lead this thing because God knows it all. Jesus was just saying, <coughs> and Jesus actually came to die. He knew why he came. 
But as he lived and walked the earth and loved, he's like, does it have to be like this? Can this cup pass for me? Can we do it any other way? But if the answer is no, nevertheless, not what I want, but Father, what you want. Your will be done, Father. I fall back and I allow your will to be done. And once we allow God's will to be done, we will realize that his way is the right way. And we will never be the less by following his way. Come on, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. God, it's your way or the highway. It's your will and not our will. God, you get the glory. So help us to fall back. Help us to deny ourselves. Help us to walk away from things that are hurtful and not good for us because you know what is best and we yield ourselves to you. We don't want the fallback where we fall away from you. We do want the fallback where you make our enemies fall back. But God, there is a fallback that sometimes we don't want, but we know we need it. We need to fall back and let you have your way. God, have your way in us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Just want to say God bless you. I love you dearly. This is your pastor, Pastor Andre Mitchell, and I'm signing off. So wonderful to get a chance to teach one of the greatest churches in the entire world. Bye-bye.